Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn. No one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent, pitch it outside the camp, some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord, go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, a pillar of cloud would come down, stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant, Joshua son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, Feed these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, 
and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, cannot see my face, or no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. He carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Skipping on to verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. This reading is the New Living Translation of Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. 
be found on the Church Bibles on page 732. The Transfiguration. About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up onto the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see. And they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with them. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let us make three memorials uh, as shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them, terror gripped them as the crowd covered them. Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice finished, Jesus was there alone. They didn't tell anyone about that time of what they had seen. Well, uh, thank you um, uh, to uh, Liz and Pete and Jonathan for that. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord God, we um, pray that your name would be glorified by the public reading of your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Can I move this out of the way? A long time ago, a long way away, a man climbs a mountain to meet with God. A cloud covers the top of the mountain, and God speaks to the man from within the cloud. He reveals his glory to him and explains to the man just who he is. He is the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He is both mercy and justice made manifest. He is the Lord. And the man goes away, back down the mountain, his face shining with the glory of God. Much later, but for us still a long time ago and still a long way away, a different man climbs a different mountain to meet with the same God. He is that same God. Again, the cloud comes down and again, the divine voice rings out. Again, God reveals something vital about who he is. But instead of describing his character or listing his attributes, he points to the man and says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And this man too goes away shining, not with a reflected glory, but with a glory all his own. You'll know if you've been with us for a little while that we've been working our way through Luke's gospel, 
and asking ourselves the question, who is Jesus? And so you might be wondering what the, uh, the story of Moses on Mount Sinai has to do with that. For that matter, you might be wondering what the story of the Transfiguration has to do with that. Well, my answer is that both of these stories give us a glimpse behind the curtain of reality. They reveal something about who Luke thinks Jesus is. And at this point in Luke's story, there's still a fair bit of uncertainty about that, isn't there? Just the chapter before, we see how confused the disciples are about who they're following. Some think he's John the Baptist, reborn. Others think he might be Elijah, or maybe one of the other ancient prophets. But they're not sure. Only Peter seems to guess the truth when he calls Jesus the Messiah, the Christ of God. But Luke has still more to say about Jesus' identity. Because when they thought about the Messiah, many Jews were expecting a purely human figure, uh, someone who would rule through political or military means. But through the story of the Transfiguration and the echoes of Exodus that it contains, Luke is letting us know loud and clear that Jesus is not just a human Messiah. He is that, but he is so much more as well. He is the Son of God. He is God himself. But which God? And if that seems like a silly question, I hope that you'll bear with me. Is the God revealed in Exodus the same God that's revealed in Luke? Does the same voice speak to Moses on Mount Sinai that speaks to uh, Jesus on Mount Hermon all those years later? And this is a, a really important question for us today, isn't it? Because we've all heard people say that as Christians, we don't really need to worry about the Old Testament too much. Or maybe you've heard that the uh, New Testament God is really quite different from the Old Testament one. Maybe you've had a sort of change of mood. Maybe we've occasionally been tempted to think similar things ourselves uh, in the difficult parts of our journey through the Restore program. I don't know. But that is not how Jesus saw things. The Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. Earlier in Luke's Gospel, we read of an incident where he's uh, speaking in a synagogue in Nazareth. You might know the passage, it's Luke 4. Um, he stands up and he takes a scroll from the prophet Isaiah, which is in the Old Testament. He reads it out, and then he says to the crowd, Today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, what you've just heard was written about me. That's what he says. And when he's asked about the law and the prophets... He said that he had not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he saw his ministry as a continuation of the work of Moses and of all the prophets before him. And the fact that Moses, who represents the law, and Elijah, who represents the prophets, are present on the mountain with Jesus, proves this. Jesus was the one they had always been pointing to, the one they had been waiting for, the one who was going to complete the work that they started. Moses had led the people out of slavery in Egypt, but on the cross, Jesus was about to accomplish an even greater exodus, the liberation from captivity to sin and death. Moses may have interceded for the people and 
just before our chapter that was read out, he actually offers his life in exchange for theirs. But it is Jesus whose sacrifice for sin will ultimately be accepted. So, who is Jesus, according to Luke? No, I've gone too far forward there. Uh, who is Jesus, according to Luke? Well, he's the one that fulfills the Old Testament, who completes the work of the law and the prophets. And it's through the lens of Jesus that we read the Old Testament today, as part of God's revealed word to us. He helps us to interpret it correctly, because it gives it, because he gives it its fullest meaning. It is all about him. He is the Lord. In our passage from Exodus, Moses and God grapple together with a really thorny problem. It's the problem that drives huge portions of the Old Testament story. And that problem is this. How can a holy God dwell amongst unholy people without destroying them? How how does a holy God dwell amidst a sinful people without destroying them? Think about it. God wants a relationship with the Israelites. He's brought them out of Egypt so that that can happen. But they almost immediately, I mean almost straight away, turn their backs on him and start worshipping an idol of a golden calf. You know that story? The story of the golden calf? Yeah, it's a big moment in Israel's history and not not a high point. They decisively break the covenant with God that was made just before. So God commands them to enter the promised land, to conquer it. But he says, I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. So God promises to send an angel instead uh, as a guide. But Moses knows there is absolutely no point in the people going to the promised land unless God's presence will go with them. No mere angel can substitute for God's presence. Without the ongoing presence of God, the people simply have no future at all, wherever they happen to be. And the promised land is just a pile of dirt. And the people know this. And we see them mourn when they realise that they have forfeited the presence of God in their midst. So it's quite the problem. How can the holy God dwell with the unholy people without putting them in terrible danger? You weren't expecting to see him next, were you? No. People seen Frozen? Yeah, a few hands. David has. A big Frozen fan. Who's this character, David? That's Olaf the Snowman. Thank you. Um, well, if you haven't seen the film, uh, Olaf has a dream. It's something that he wants more than anything else in the world. People know what that is? Well, more broadly, Olaf wants to see summer. Yes, because he knows that summer is full of lovely activities, things you can't do at any other time of year, like going to the beach, uh, enjoying cocktails, getting a nice suntan. Unfortunately for Olaf, what he doesn't know about summer is what it does to snowmen. And the people of Israel are in a not dissimilar situation. They're caught between a bit of a rock and a hard place. Because they know that they need the presence of God to make life worth living. Without it, they might as well have stayed in Egypt as slaves. But unlike poor Olaf, they know that they can't survive what they want. God's holiness would consume them 
like summer sun melting snow. So what's to be done? Well, the whole Old Testament grapples with that question. We see the beginnings of it even in our passage from Exodus. Because of Israel's sin with the golden calf, their relationship with God has been badly damaged. Their intimacy has been gone, has, has been damaged. So from now on, for their own safety, they will always need a mediator to stand between them and the divine presence. And Moses can fulfill that role for a little while, but Moses isn't going to live forever. So to begin with, the Lord dwells in a nondescript tent outside of the camp. We heard about that in our reading. It's called the Tent of Meeting. Only Moses and Joshua are allowed to enter the Tent of Meeting. So the distance between a sinful people and a holy God remains, doesn't it? And a bit later, a proper tabernacle, which is just a fancy tent, uh, will get built in the middle of the camp. But even so, the distance remains, because only the Levites are allowed to minister there. And later still, when the Israelites enter the Promised Land and settle it, Solomon will build an amazing temple of bricks and mortar. But even then, even once the fire and glory of the Lord descends to live in this temple, the distance remains, because a priesthood is established that can minister there, and only the high priest has direct access to God, and even then, only once a year. And this is hardly the life-giving, intimate relationship with his people that God had longed for, or that he'd enjoyed with Moses. And it gets worse, because just before the temple is destroyed by the armies of Babylon, the divine presence leaves it all together. Ezekiel has a vision of God literally leaving the temple before it's destroyed. Later on, it will be rebuilt, a much smaller, less impressive version. Um, but the fires don't fall. God does not re-inhabit it. it just, it's just a cold, empty shell. And for 400 years, that time between the Testaments, before the time of Jesus, there is no sign of God's presence amongst his people. The divine voice has fallen terribly silent. But then the divine voice suddenly speaks again, not in the mighty commanding tones of a warrior or a king, but in the cry of a baby, born to a young mother from a backwater town, a nobody, really. But in her womb, a new temple is formed, not of bricks and mortar, but of fragile flesh and blood. And the presence of the Holy God appears again amidst his people. And this time, there's no distance. He walks and he eats and he laughs with sinful men and women, and they're not consumed. They're his friends. But as we see in our reading from Luke, uh, old habits die hard, don't they? We see Peter offering to build shelters for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And the word shelters, it could be translated tabernacles. See, Peter recognizes the divine presence in Jesus. But he tries to contain it, to capture it, to keep it in place. Or maybe out of fear, he tries to put up a barrier between himself and the presence to try and keep it separate somehow. But the presence won't be contained. And the time of distance and separation is long over. That ship has sailed. 
Through his coming death on the cross, Jesus is about to turn us sinful people into a holy temple by making us part of his body. And at Pentecost, we see the fires of God's presence come to consecrate this new temple through the Holy Spirit. So, who is Jesus, according to Luke? Well, he's Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one who removes forever the distance between us and God. He sets us on fire with the presence and keeps us from being burned. Just think about that for a minute. If you're a Christian here today, then you are part of the body of Christ. And what that means is that you are a temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit dwells inside you. Do you believe that this morning? Does it feel that way? Are we living like that's true? Are we living like temples? Can we honestly say that we are bearing his presence to the world around us every day? Can I say that? The last thing I want to draw our attention to today is the theme of God's glory. Because in Exodus, we see Moses pray a truly outrageous prayer. I don't know if you managed to catch it during the reading. He asks, now show me your glory. And I have to say, that feels pretty cheeky to me. He's already arguably seen more of God than any person living. He's talked with him face to face several times in fire, in cloud, in thick darkness. It feels a bit like he's pushing his luck, if I'm honest. What could be more glorious than what he's already experienced? But what Moses is really asking for is much more profound than just another display of God's power. Moses wants to see God as he really is, his unveiled presence, not hidden by fire or smoke or darkness. And amazingly, God doesn't seem to consider this a cheeky request. He doesn't react like Mr. Bumble does to Oliver Twist's request for more. And although to answer Moses' request fully would be to endanger his life, God does agree to reveal something to Moses that he hasn't yet experienced. He will cause all his goodness to pass in front of him and proclaim his name to him. You see, God knows that Moses and the Israelites need to know him better if this covenant is going to work out. And for that task, just seeing God won't be enough. The covenant is a bit like a marriage, that's the way to think about it. And you'd probably be unlikely to marry someone that you'd only seen, but didn't really know the character of, or didn't know their priorities. Um, That would probably feel like a bit of a risky marriage. As God passes in front of Moses, he proclaims his name as the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, something of his glory rubs off on Moses. That's what we see. His face becomes radiant so that when he comes back down the mountain, people are actually afraid to come near him because they can tell just by looking at him that he's been with God. Hard to imagine. I'd love to know what he looked like. But in this, Moses is something of a model for us because his God is our God and we are also in a covenant relationship with that God. 
We are temples of the living God, and we always have the Holy Spirit within us. And what that means is, there is never a moment where we are not with God. Has that occurred to you before? There's never a moment when we are not basking in the glory of God. So our faces should always be radiant. People should always be able to tell that we have seen the glory of God. As Paul writes, we are those who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And one way to think of this is to imagine ourselves as little moons. Okay? Uh, moons don't give off any light of their own. We wouldn't be able to see them at all if it weren't for the sun's light shining on them. But because of moons, the glory of the sun can be seen even at night after the sun's gone down. You can't see the sun itself, but you can see the moon. You can see the sun's light still because of the moons. And in the same way, people who don't believe in God or struggle to see him at work in the world should be able to look at our lives and see his glory reflected there. So again, I ask, can they? Something to think about. Now, what I love about the transfiguration is that God actually answers Moses' prayer. Thousands of years later, after his earthly life is over, he answers Moses' prayer to see God's glory. Moses gets to see his unveiled presence. He sees it in the face of Jesus Christ, and a handful of Jesus' disciples get to bear witness to that moment. Just for a moment, they all see Jesus as he really is, as he has been all along. They see the glory that he had with the Father in the beginning. But they also glimpse the glory of the coming kingdom and something of what Christ will be when he returns. They suddenly realize that Jesus, this man that they've been following around Galilee, is no mere moon. He is the sun, the light of the world. His glory, like his kingdom, is both in the now and the not yet. And the way of his glory lies through the cross. Through what he suffered, Jesus will bring many others to glory, including all of us here, if we trust him. And as I finish, I just want to leave you with an encouragement. Because um, maybe you're feeling down, maybe you think your life doesn't reflect God's presence and glory like it should. I can certainly relate to that feeling this morning, if that is how you're feeling. What I want you to remember, friends, is that it is not your glory that is on show. You are only a moon, so stop trying to be the sun. All you can do is allow yourself to reflect the glory that is shining on you. And even when the night is at its darkest, or you're only shining dimly, or maybe the cloud covers you for a little while, you still let the world know that there is a sun in the universe. You are a temple of the living God. And if you remember that, then his divine presence will be evident to all who meet you. May God bless you this week. Amen.